Well, do have that uh, passage open in front of you. That'd be really helpful. Um, around um, around Easter this year, um, so so kind of uh, through through March and and uh, beginning part of April, uh, about. 750 plus churches, I think, including us um, and, and St. James here in Ryde, um, uh, and, and loads of churches from the FIC as well. Um, uh, we're, we're coming together for a month of mission called Life 22. Why is it called Life? Why are the organizers of it called A Passion for Life? Well, it's because, isn't it, the message that, that Christians carry, the message of God in the Bible, the good news. Uh, message that, that the Bible proclaims is a message of life, isn't it? And not, not just any old life, uh, but the life that everyone needs to know about. Actually, the life we long for, life in all its fullness, life forever with the God who made and loves us. That's the, the goal of the gospel, isn't it? Life with God forever. And that is nowhere more clearly seen, I think, than in the Gospel of John, where he tells us that he's written his gospel so that those who read it may have that life. Um, You can see this at the end if you want to. You can flick to it, chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, the end of the gospel where he tells us why he's written his book. Uh, uh, John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, John is presenting in this book some of the signs, the miracles that Jesus did, as evidence to show us who he is, that he's the, he's the Christ, he's God's promised king, and that he's God's son, uh, God in the flesh, and he's presenting this evidence to us who weren't around when these things took place. We couldn't see it for ourselves so that we would believe in him or have faith in him or trust in him and that by believing, therefore, have life in his name. So there's kind of an order to those verses, isn't there? John is presenting evidence that it might lead to belief or faith uh, in him and that by believing we might have life in his name. Uh, that's what John wants for his, his readers. He wants us to have life, life with God forever. But he knows that the road to this life, eternal life, is through faith in Jesus Christ. And the only way to genuine faith in Jesus Christ, the real uh, Jesus, is through the first-hand accounts of those who were his chosen apostles and have written down in the, in the scriptures what they saw and they heard uh, and they touched. So that's why he's written his book, to present evidence to lead to belief and then to life. And, and in fact, that's how he structured uh, the book. He's actually arranged it around the signs that Jesus did and the teaching of Jesus that shows us what the signs mean. And, and if you've been around on and off, we've dipped in and out of the first four chapters of of John, we've been seeing that already, haven't we? Uh, if you remember, there's a, there's a, a, a sort of overview of the book in chapter one, the testimony of, of John the Baptist in chapter one, and then the first kind of section of the book begins in chapter two and ends in chapter four with the sign that Jesus did to show us who he is. You might remember the one in chapter two, it's the changing of water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana, um, kind of sign that was very rich in, in Old Testament imagery to to show that Jesus was the promised bridegroom that the the prophet Isaiah uh, spoke of hundreds of years before when he said in in Isaiah 25 verse 6 that on this mountain the Lord of hosts 
will make for all peoples a feast of rich food and well-aged wine. God is going to come, says Isaiah, and restore his people to himself and provide for them this eternal life with him in his kingdom, pictured as a, as a wedding feast to, to end all feasts. And, and then 700 years later, along comes Jesus in John chapter 2 and turns water into well-aged wine in order to say, it's me. I'm the one. I'm the promised bridegroom of the Old Testament. I'm the Messiah, the Christ, who's, who's come to restore God's people to himself. And, and that section that started with a sign also ended with a sign in chapter 4, didn't it, where Jesus heals uh, a boy who is at the point of death. And, and that sign we saw as well is kind of rich in Old Testament imagery, where again, the, the, the promised Isaiah, in the same chapter, in fact, in chapter 25, verse 8, spoke of God's promised king uh, as someone who will swallow up death forever and wipe tears from all faces. And then along comes Jesus at the end of chapter 4 and heals a boy at the point of death. See, John's, John's bookended that section with these two signs, which show Jesus doing exactly those things that the Old Testament scriptures uh, said God's promised king would be doing. You see, John wants us to know who Jesus is. He's presenting us with evidence that Jesus is God's son and God's king, the one who has come among us in order to rescue us. And, and in these next few chapters that we're going to look at in the, in the lead up to our mission in, um, uh, in uh, uh, March and uh, early April, um, uh, he's doing the same thing. We're going to see him doing the same thing. He's beginning and ending this section, 5 to 10, with a sign that Jesus does that tells us who he is so that we would believe in him and have life in him. And, and if the first section tells us that Jesus has come from the Father to bring us life, well, this second section shows us that he continues to offer us life despite being rejected as he does so. So, so let's have a look. We're going to have a look at the first half of chapter 5 where we're going to see two things. The divine identity of Jesus, so, so that's his deity, that he's equal with God because he is God. And then we're going to see his job description, if you like, what he's come to do, which is the work of God, the work of the Father, to, to bring us eternal life and save us from eternal judgment. And, and those two things have got radical implications, as, as we'll see, for, for both our own response to Jesus and for the priority that we give to telling other people about Jesus. So have a look, first of all, at verses 1 to 18, the, the divine identity of Jesus, which we will see not simply in what Jesus says, what he claims, but in the evidence of what he does as well in, in this next sign. So have a look at verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind lame and paralyzed. So, so the scene here is, is kind of sad, isn't it? It's a pitiful scene, really. It's a scene of, of extreme need, um, scene of great misery, vast number of people in, in desperate situations, blind, lame, paralyzed, coming to this pool in, in the hope that they'll be healed. Um, 
I, I guess it's the kind of scene, in many respects, is, is just, it's just one of many different manifestations that we could witness, couldn't we, every day, of the brokenness and the need of our sin-fallen world. Isn't it? In other words, it's, it's a desperate and bleak and hopeless scene, but actually it's not a, it's not a unique scene, is it? It's actually an all-too-typical scene of life for many, many people in a broken world. And it's symptomatic, of course, of the broken spiritual state of humanity as our sin renders us cut off from God and so spiritually blind and lame. In other words, the physical need here is just a kind of manifestation of the more profound spiritual need that exists in a world that's cut off from God. And it's into this kind of sort of bleak, hopeless situation that Jesus walks and and he sees one particular man, verse 5, who's been in this kind of hopeless state for 38 years. We're not told that he's a special man. Um, that, that, you know, there's anything different that, that marks him out from, from any others, uh, nothing that commends him to Jesus other than his need. And, and we can imagine what this poor guy is like, can't we? Muscles wasted away from years of being unused, such that, verse 7, he needs help to be able to get to the pool, help that he's not getting. And Jesus says to him, verse 6, do you want to be healed? Well, of course he wants to be healed, <laughs> But he thinks that's what's, that what's going to heal him is the water. That, that I, th- I think the belief seems to have been that the pool had kind of you know, miraculous healing powers, a bit like people think about the, the Ganges River or they think about Lourdes or, or something like that. And so he says to Jesus, verse 7, I, I've, I've got no one to, to put me in the pool. But Jesus has got other ideas, hasn't he? He doesn't need any so-called healing water. He, he simply speaks to the man, doesn't he? Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once, verse 9, the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. In other words, Jesus has totally healed him. He's raised him from years of total incapacity to new life. And he's done it by his voice, by the power of his word, simply by speaking to him. Get up. And and if you glance ahead, look to verse 25, you'll you'll see that Jesus says there, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead, that's the spiritually dead, will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. In other words, Jesus is the one, he says, I'm the one who gives spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead by the power of my voice. And, and not only that, but if you look ahead to verse 28, Jesus says, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, i.e. the physically dead, will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In other words, it's Jesus who gives life by his word, his voice, and it's Jesus who will one day judge by his word, his voice. And what John wants us to see here is the proof that Jesus is who he claims to be as the same Jesus, by the power of his word, simply speaks to this man, get up and walk, and instantly he does. Do you see the point? 
The man's physical condition, if you like, is a microcosm. It's a physical example of the spiritual condition of humanity in its rebellion against God. And what John wants us to see is that this man, Jesus, is the man who claims to have the power to reverse the effects of that, all that fallenness and bring spiritual, uh, spiritual life to the spiritually dead. And as if to prove that, here he is with the power to give new life now to the all but physically dead. That's amazing, isn't it? You see what he's doing? And, and uh, how would you have imagined people would respond to that? I mean, you, you'd think they'd be thrilled, wouldn't you? Gobsmacked, praising God. You know, maybe saying to themselves, did you see what this guy did? You know, who but God has that kind of power and authority? I need to find out more about him and, and what he wants from me. But the response is nothing like that, is it? Have a, have a look at the end of, um, the end of verse 9. Um, now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. So that's astounding, isn't it? These, these Jews, that's the Jewish religious leaders, far, far from celebrating this guy's miraculous healing, they're having to go at him for carrying his mat on the Sabbath. Um, so, so what was the problem with that? Um, the word Sabbath means, means rest. Um, and, and looking back, it was the day on which God rested from his work of creation, uh, Genesis chapter 2. But looking forward, it, it pointed to God's future work uh, where he would restore a fallen creation from its bondage to sin um, so that God's people would experience perfect and eternal rest in, in, in the world to come. So actually, what better a way to spend the Sabbath than in healing someone? As we've seen, it's a lovely picture of what God, through the Lord Jesus, is going to do for everyone who trusts in him. He's going to restore them completely and bring them eternal rest. But under the law uh, in the Old Testament, the the Sabbath was also a a day of rest. Uh, It was a day when when God's people were to stop their their normal day-to-day work and and remember God's rescue of them from their slavery in Egypt, uh, Deuteronomy 5. And, and, of course, look forward to that perfect rest that was to come. But the trouble was that the Jews of Jesus' time, they kind of lost the plot about what the Sabbath was for and, and instead had become, uh, I guess, more than a little OCD, shall we say, about Sabbath rule-keeping. Um, in, in fact, they, they'd gone way beyond the, the, the law with it. They'd introduced a multitude of rules and regulations of their own about what you could and you couldn't do on the Sabbath, one of which was, so it seems, that you couldn't carry your mat around on the Sabbath. Do, do you see, the, for, for them, that the, the Sabbath had become an end in itself. Keeping the rules had become more important than the God that they should have been honoring on, on the Sabbath day. What, what they should have seen as they looked at this poor man was a little sign that the promised rest of the scriptures was at hand. But instead, all they saw was a man breaking the rules and carrying his mat when he shouldn't have been. You know, how, how blind can you get? Uh, but it seems as though these, these Jewish leaders, they hadn't been around when Jesus healed the man. So they asked him, verse 10, what, what are you doing carrying your mat around on the Sabbath? And, and he replies, verse 11, it's not my fault, guys. The, the bloke who healed me, he told me to do it. And, and they, they ask, verse 12, well, who was that then? Um, which he doesn't seem to know. 
at the time, but, but having discovered that it was Jesus who did it, he goes straight back, doesn't he, to the Jewish authorities in verse 15 and betrays the man who's just healed him. There's gratitude for you. Um, and the result in verse 16 is that the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So, so, so what, what we've got here is Jesus demonstrating in this sign his identity as the divine son of God. He's doing what only God can do, isn't he? He just speaks and by the power of his voice, new life comes to the lame. A pointer to the fact that this is the voice of the life giver of verses 28 and 29. And, and the last day judge of, of verse 25. And of course, it's a beautiful picture of the perfect rest that God promises in the, in the uh, scriptures that he will bring through his promised king. But now have a look at uh, verses 17 and 18, where Jesus justifies his healing on the Sabbath. And, and notice how this, this wonderfully explains the sign that he's just done, and so his identity. So have a look at verse uh, 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus doesn't even bother having a discussion with them about Matt carrying on the Sabbath. He, he doesn't even bother. The, the Old Testament law had no such petty rules as, as, as about the Sabbath. Um, the, the, these were rules that the Jews had made up in, in, in addition. Uh, and Jesus just ignores them altogether. You know, guys, get me on one of those if you want to. You know, knock yourself out. It's a fair cop. Um, what Jesus wants them to see here is his identity. He wants them to see who he is. And what he's doing in verse 17 is he's drawing on a theological debate that the Jews were having at the time. And the debate was, to what degree does God keep the Sabbath? So most, of the, most Jews had come to the conclusion that, that to some degree at least, God must work on the Sabbath. Because if he didn't, you know, the universe would implode. <laughs> Um, so, so he must be doing at least some work on the Sabbath. But the debate was really about how much work w was God doing. W which helps us see what Jesus is doing here when he says in verse 17, My father is working until now, and I am working. In other words, Jesus' justification for working on the Sabbath is that my father is working on the Sabbath, and I am too. In other words, he's claiming for himself the same exemption from working on the Sabbath as God. He's calling God as well, my Father. And, and the Jews are under no illusion as to what Jesus means by that. Look, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. It's very clear, isn't it? Who does Jesus think he is? Well, he's making himself equal with God. He's claiming to be divine. And, and actually, if we're in any doubt about that claim, if you just sneak a peek at verse 19, you'll see he makes the, the same point there in a slightly different way. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does that the Son does likewise. Do you, do you see? He's, he's saying that he's utterly dependent upon the Father, and what the Father does, the Son does uh, as well. It's another claim to be God's divine Son. He's, he's claiming an exclusive relationship with God to such a degree that he's equal with him. 
And, and that, that kind of picks up, doesn't it, on something that is implicit actually through the whole Bible. We talked about it in our Bible bite as well just now, didn't we? Which is that the relationship, not only between the Father and the Son, but, but, but the Spirit as well, is that all of them are fully God. It's a bit of a mystery for our little brains to, to get to grips with. But it's the clear teaching of the Bible. And, and it's here as well in relation to the Father and the Son. What Jesus is claiming here is that he is God. As the Son, he is equally God with the Father. And, and the claim of his identity is evidenced in the sign that he's just performed as he does what only God can do. And, and it's, friends, it's worth just pausing at that point, isn't it? Because that has staggering implications. You know, pe- people often say, don't they, um, I would believe in God if he'd just show himself. Um, you know, if he'd actually come here so I could meet him. But the, the staggering truth that we see here is that this is just what God has done. As we see Jesus in the, in the pages of the New Testament, that the stunning truth is that we are seeing God in the flesh. Because the Son does what the Father does. The Son reveals to us the Father in the deepest way possible. Do You see, we can actually know God through Jesus. You don't have to try and guess at how much we can know God and be made right with him. That's what religions are all about, isn't it? The, the, the different ways that people have to kind of, the ways they've dreamt up for how to know God and get right with God. But what John wants us to know is that in Jesus, God himself has come down to us to reveal God to us. As, as we see Jesus in the pages of the New Testament, we can see and know God. But have a look now at verses 19 to 30, because um, having seen the, the, the divine identity of Jesus, we can now see the job description of Jesus, what Jesus has come to do. Have a look at verse 19 again. So, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does, the son does likewise. So, so what has Jesus come to do? Well, he's come to do the work of the Father. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So, so although Jesus is equal with the Father, he's equally God, notice that he doesn't act independently of the Father, but he actually um, subordinates himself to the will of the Father, so, so that they're, they're working in harmony together. And, and, and the, the picture here is kind of of the of, of the son being like a um, a bit like an apprentice, if you like, to the father. You know that in you know that in previous centuries, many trades were passed on from generation to generation, didn't they? So, sons did what their their fathers did. You know, you probably know this. If your name is Smith or Baker or Taylor or Mason or something like that, it's probably not hard to imagine what previous generations of your family did. Uh, it doesn't apply to the surname Bell. Um, unfortunately, which, well, which comes from the French, and it means fair or beautiful or handsome, which, which seems right and proper to me, but, but, but there we go. Um, <laughs> um, uh, but the way it worked, of course, was that the, the father would, would, would pass on to the son, as it were, the, the secrets of the trade, by showing the son all that he does. 
so that the son would imitate all that he saw the father doing. And it's that kind of imagery that Jesus is getting at here when he says, I've not come to do anything by myself. I'm only doing what I see my father doing, and what he does is what I do. In other words, his will and the father's will are exactly aligned. Do you see, he's claiming and he's substantiating by his sign that whatever God says, he says. Whatever God does, he does. And that the words and deeds of Jesus are the very words and deeds of God. And this is so because Jesus, although equally God, doesn't use his divinity to work independently of the Father, but he uses it in obedience and submission to the Father. And he can do that, verse 20, because the Father loves the Son and shows him everything that he's doing. This is how Jesus is able to perfectly accomplish the will of the Father, isn't it? A a bit later in in chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And Jesus is able to perfectly accomplish that because the Father loves him and shows him all that he's doing. And and look at the second half of verse 20 as well, because Jesus claims there that the Father will show him greater works than these. In other words, Jesus, in in obedience to what the Father shows him, is going to do greater things even than this healing that he's, he's just done. And and, and what's he going to do? Well, he's going to do two things. Look, you can see the first one uh, in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So so one of the the greater works that Jesus is going to do is he's going to give life. He says it again in verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Uh, Back in the Old Testament, it's made clear that that God is the one who has power over life and death. He's the one who raises the dead and gives them life. But now Jesus says here, he too has the power to give life to whom he will. And and of course, what he means by life there is the spiritual life in him, life that begins now and culminates in the new resurrected life in the future. Uh, as he'll put it in, in chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. You see, Jesus, as God the Son, God in the flesh, has the exclusive power over life and death. Jesus has come to give life from the Father. But not only has Jesus come to give life, but the second of these greater works that Jesus is going to do is he's going to judge. Jesus is going to judge. Have a look at verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. He makes a similar point in verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. In other words, the father has given over the work of judging the world to the son, to Jesus. 
It's Jesus that we will stand in front of, friends, to give an account at the end of time. And Jesus is telling us those things so that we will take him seriously. Because God has sent Jesus to do the work of the Father, which is the work of giving life from the Father and the work of judging on the Father's behalf. So what should be our response to that? Well, God has given these things over to Jesus. Verse 23 that all may honour the Son as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. In other words, friends, our response must be to honour Jesus. That's That's why Jesus is saying these things to these Jewish leaders, isn't it? He's letting them know that to reject him, which of course is what they're doing, is to reject God. To dishonor Jesus is to dishonor God. And of course, we don't have to to, uh, exercise outright hostility towards Jesus to be guilty of dishonoring him, do we? No, we dishonor him, we dishonor him simply by failing to honor him as God, as, as who he is. Whereas we honor him as we accept him for who he is and live for him as who he is, as God, God in the Son, God who's come from the Father to give life from him and bring judgment from him. Friends, we mustn't make a mistake here to not honor Jesus, to fail to see him for who he is, is to not honor God the Father who sent him. So what's he come to do? What's his job description? Well, he's come to do the work of the Father, which is to give life from him and to bring judgment on his behalf. And and then that work is is applied in in the last few verses to to both the present and the future. Because Jesus has come to, to give life and to judge, we need to believe his words. Have a look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's a staggering statement, isn't it? Just just look at what he's saying there. He's already told us that he's come to, to, to give life from the Father and to judge on the Father's behalf. And here he says that receiving that life, escaping that judgment, depends upon hearing his word and believing or trusting in the one who sent him. And it's doing that which enables us to pass from death to life. In other words, friends, our condition, if we don't believe in Jesus, is that we are dead in spiritual terms and still facing God's judgment. But Jesus has come to give life. And it's as we hear and believe his word that we cross over from death to life, the eternal life that he's come to bring. And and notice that this life begins now. He has eternal life, verse 24. He has passed from death to life. Do you see the eternal life that Jesus has come to bring to, to those who hear his word and believe in him? It begins now. We can be assured of it now. That's a fabulous promise, isn't it? 
But friends, notice that it's a promise for those who hear and believe in Jesus. Because he is the one who both gives life and brings judgment. So can I ask us, are we honouring Jesus? Do we see him and honour him as God? Or do we ignore him? Do we live in his world but ignore him? Do we reject him? Because, friends, Jesus is clear here that the only way to pass from death to life, the only way to escape God's judgment and know eternal life in him is through hearing and believing in Jesus and his gospel word. And if we do that, verse 25, we can be sure, assured of eternal life now. The hour is coming and is now here. When the dead, that's the spiritually dead, will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's now. You see, this is what Jesus is doing now. He's giving spiritual life to the spiritually dead if they will but hear his voice. And friends, that includes you and me this morning. So we need to carefully consider our response to Jesus, don't we? Because not only is his work now to give life to the dead, if we will but hear his voice and believe in him, but his work in the future is not to give life from God, but to judge on God's behalf. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Friends, John desperately wants us to see here Jesus' divine identity and his job description. He wants us to see who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Do you see it? Please, friend, don't write Jesus off as simply a good man. He's not simply a good man. What he claims to be is God the Son. And he supports that claim with a sign as he does what only God can do, thus proving who he is. And as God the Son, he tells us what he's come to do. And he's come to do the work of the Father. In Jesus alone rests the authority from the Father to give spiritual and eternal life. Something he does now in those who won't reject him or ignore him as these Jews were doing, but who will listen to his life-giving voice and trust him. So friend, I pray that If you have not done that yet, that you will do so this morning. Because the other work that he's come to do as the divine son of God is to one day raise and judge all people. And those who have done good, verse 29, in other words, those whose works give evidence that they have honoured the son by believing in him, well, they will know new resurrection life. But those who don't, those who've done evil, those whose lives show evidence of rejecting Jesus, of dishonouring him, will be raised only to face God's judgment. So there's a call here, isn't there, to, to take Jesus seriously because he holds the power and authority to grant life and to bring judgment, and it all turns on how we respond to him. But friend, if you're not yet a Christian this morning, I pray that you will understand this and honour him by trusting in him today. And if you are a Christian this morning, I pray that you will grasp this afresh. And maybe especially as we pray and as we plan for this Easter 
Life 22 mission, that his word, uh, that, it, uh, that we would grasp afresh, that his word in the lives of those within your orbit is what people need to hear if they are to have life in him and escape judgment from him. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for the, the, uh, the implicit plea of this passage to take Jesus seriously because he holds the power and the authority to grant life and to bring judgment. Uh, and so please, would you be so at work in our minds and our hearts today that we would not reject him, that we would not ignore him, but that we would listen to him and trust him and share him with others as the divine son of God and the only one in whom is life forever with you. We pray this in his name. Amen.